is not like TV only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. So the problem with this podcast is mm. that we don't open it like Thunderbirds. No. I kind of feel that we should have some sort of big rocketing five, four, three. Wow. Yeah. They did do that well. They did. And it really sort of brings some energy to the podcast. And I'm not sure we've ever really achieved that for this there's podcast. There's no energy in this early session. No, there's nothing. Yeah. I, we, I don't even know if we're recording yet. Yeah, no, exactly. It's uh, low energy screen watching is what the former US president referred to it as once. <laughs> early mm. spring. spring. Yeah. How's, is spring sprung well for you? Uh, spring sprung. Look, I mean, there's a couple of things. So, mm. uh, physically, Simon, I've never been in greater shape. Like, just, mm. you know, day you after day, well. it's just one. No, well. it's You're terrible. No, I've, you know, put on like 10 it's kilos this year. It's yeah. ridiculous. But yeah. anyway, Simon, here's yeah. the dilemma I've got. Two things. Mm. One, do you see this right here? Little shaving neck the other day, splurting mm. blood everywhere. It's been like four days now, hasn't healed. It's very oh. frustrating. Other thing, Simon, and mm. I'm concerned about this because of that neck. I got attacked by a bird today. I'm not sure if you can see the little band-aid there covering my ear. Wow. Here's the thing. If this little nick is lasting like four days and hasn't really quite gone down, what's going to happen with this geyser happening up here? Anyway, Simon, enough dilly-dallying. Let's get on with the podcast. We're here to talk about screen watching. We talk about the screens that have TV shows on them. We talk about the screens with the movies on them. We talk hmm. about the screens that you watch Jimmy Fallon on them. Folks, Ugh. we talk about all the screens, all of your TV screen heroes discussed here on the podcast. And yep. if we're going to segue away from TV screen heroes, what better opportunity to say, my name's Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster. I am Simon Foster and you are Dan Barrett. It's very good to be. I'm sorry about the year. That's clearly the uh, the, the attack of the magpie, our early spring season here. Google it, kids, if you're from international audiences. Um, big week for shit sequels this week. The Nun 2 and My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3 have landed in cinemas. You'll notice on the running sheet that I'll not be reviewing either of those because they don't give a uh, rats about them um also as we record this the bad white dudes have been exposed danny masterson off to jail for 30 odd years um hang on to your that 70 shows box sets because you won't be seeing that is that headed the way of the cosby show you think it just won't turn up on telly anymore I mean, the difference with The Cosby Show is that The Cosby Show was a series that was based very much on the moral teachings of Cliff Huxtable, a.k.a. Oh, sure. one Bill Cosby. Names yeah. right there on the show. Like, it, it was just kind of gross trying to be told how to behave in the world and mm. what you're doing wrong from a guy who was, well, doing that. Yeah. Uh, so, hard to watch. The annoying thing, like, this is the problem with the Bill Cosby situation. Let me tell you what the problem was with the Bill Cosby situation. <laughs> I was a third of the way through a Cosby show rewatch when Hannibal Buress got on stage and started talking really publicly about Cosby. And within wow. a week or two, I couldn't finish that rewatch. I'm the real victim in this, Simon. Clearly you are. You are indeed. As are many of the um, employee of Jimmy Fallon, who, as we record this, has uh, been exposed in a Rolling Stone article for being, what's the industry word for it? A kind of a dick, really. Mm. Yeah, nasty times there, very toxic. So, You've well, sorry, since that Rolling Stone article, uh, mm. he has since issued a statement which is um, saying that, you know, he's mortified that, you know, people believe that he's acted that way, yada, yada. Um, NBC's put out, like, the one person that was willing to actually um, come out and defend him. In the mm. Rolling Stone article, they make a very specific point to say that they spoke to 50-odd staff members and none <laughs> of them were willing to go on a record as saying that they supported him. Wow. Yeah, That's so that was kind of interesting. Um, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how the thing shakes out because what's difficult about this week for Jimmy Fallon that wasn't difficult this time last week is mm. that they've just launched a brand new podcast called Strike Force 5, which ah, has yes. all five of the late night talk show hosts. This is your Jimmy Fallon, your other Jimmy, the Kimmel. The Kimmel. You've got your John Oliver. You've got yep. your Seth Myers. You've got your yep, Stephen Colbert. Sure. All doing a podcast, all chucking jokes around with that, you know, being Griffin you know, on the current affairs of the day. Well, so, what do you do when one of them is you? Well, what do you do when one of them is um, suddenly just, you know, person non grata in the world? Yeah. Like, surely they have to talk about it on this podcast. Exactly, yeah. The but the bigger problem for them is that the reason this podcast exists, they're doing at least 12 episodes, uh, 
three of them have been published. I think maybe four. I'm not sure. There'll mm. probably be a fourth one later today, I think, based on have the you for last week. Have you I've heard listened to the one so far. No, it's entertaining okay. enough. But when you do listen to them, they talk about the fact that doing the podcast to try to raise money for their staff who've been unemployed, I don't mm. know how much money you can make with a podcast considering how many hundreds of people we're talking about here, but that's neither here nor there. You know, I'm not sure you're doing much when you're paying them 50 bucks each at most. Well, I know what we get paid for this podcast, and it's that wouldn't, that wouldn't keep a family of hamsters no. in grit for a week. In fact, I tried, and I can't tell you about the results, Simon. It's Sorry too painful at this point. I know. Yeah. yeah. But the way the funding model of this is that I suspect the Spotify is putting a bit of cash in, but the two big corporate sponsors, well, sorry, um, there are two corporate sponsor brands, uh, one being Mint Mobile and the other one being Aviation Gin, both of them companies that are owned in part by Ryan Reynolds. Okay, so like that's kind of the the fun sort of angle on it. But how do you do a podcast where one of your leads is now, I I think the word's embattled, you're an embattled person when you're in a situation yes. like this. He's been so, Elland, I heard one person refer to it as. He's been caught out as being a nasty workplace person. Yeah. Uh, shout out to your wife, who I suspect is the one that said that. Oh, did she? Oh, okay. I suspect. I don't know. But anyway, Simon, how do you do a podcast when your embattled host, okay, is currently embattled? And also your key sponsor is an alcohol brand, considering that the subtext of that Rolling Stone article is very much that Jimmy Fallon may have an alcohol problem, and that's largely yes. what's fueling a lot of the um, tension on sets. What a mess. What a mm. terrible, terrible mess. What a horrible, horrible mess, which is kind of what you said about Babylon when it came out. You'll be happy to know that it's on Paramount Plus as of this week, um, which I think you should give it another go and give it a watch because it's a hell of a film and will be one day considered a classic of its um, fairly niche genre, but still a genre nevertheless. What are you smirking at? So I was trying to work out what that genre was, and then I realized I can't be, you know, that cruel about it on the <laughs> podcast. Look, and I, by the time this I said what I had to say about it, Simon, did, and the thing is, what I had to say about it wasn't a unique sentiment around the place. There no, was a lot of people. I, I know. I rode that boat fairly alone. There was a couple of fairly fo- prominent critics who sort of got on the Babylon bandwagon, and I was one of them. Well, prominence, that's a word that can be argued about. It's bandied around a lot. But... Um, you know, you're right. You, you know, people can be. I'm hoping it'll be reassessed. I think it'll be reassessed by the time this podcast goes to where. Not only will there be a sequel to Babylon, but it already would have been Star Trek Day, September eighth, the fifty seventh anniversary of the original series premiering. Um, and the aforementioned Paramount Plus has all your Star Trek series and movies there if you if you want to trek yourself into oblivion. Warp Factor well- Five. Look, I think it's really exciting that there is a streaming service where you can find Star Trek movies. Simon, yeah. they're on all the platforms. <laughs> they're not hard to find. Well, that sets up my Star Trek weekend ahead of me. No, actually, I'm a bit sci fi out at the moment after the festival. I'll probably just watch Babylon again. Or maybe just watch, a big, big, fat Greek wedding. Watch as I do and just put on the NCIS Sydney trailer and just put that on loop and watch it all oh, weekend. Uh, are we all having a laugh at that? Is, 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 it, a, is it a... It looks like... It looks okay. Oh, look, it looks fine. Uh, yeah. What I would probably say is that... Yes, it's very dopey that when you watch that trailer, you see the Sydney Opera House and the Harbour Bridge and a encounter and, and a kangaroo on the beach. <laughs> I miss the kangaroo <laughs> on the beach somehow. It's right in that in montage. It's right there. Oh, maybe it is. Uh, maybe I was just yeah. too excited by that point to notice what else is on screen. <laughs> but Simon, yes, the Opera House and the bridge is there, and yes, that was a international trailer that probably needed to be recut for the Australian market to look oh, less yeah, sort of grotesquely silly like that. But ultimately, that's probably just going to be the first episode. You'll see a lot of Australian stuff in it. Um, yeah. After that, it will settle down a bit. So, Harry's you know, just... Cafe de Wheels. Oh, I hope that. so. I mean, this is what it I want. Be. I actually want to see some of those Sydney landmarks, like the great, personality of Sydney come through. That isn't the bridge and the harbour. Like the big burnt match near the art gallery there? That'd be a thing to see. Remember that? That's Look, absolutely. Sculpture. But the other thing, Simon, is that you can actually justify showing so many shots of the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House purely because the naval base is literally right there. Like, they're not making that up. You go around the corner, you've got the naval base. It is hard to sort of not have that in the background of your shot when it is the background of your shot. Mm. So anyway, I know. You make look, I'll be excited point. to take a look at it. I think it's a smart, savvy, clever idea to do an NCIS Sydney. 
Um, even though the idea of NCIS Sydney doesn't make a lot of sense, considering that it's about investigation of naval crimes and we don't really have an NCIS here, so it has to be American NCISs. Yeah. 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 Point. I never thought of that. Yeah. But anyway, right. let's move on. What, what are we talking about, Simon? What are we reviewing this week? I'm looking at two movies this week, Biosphere, starring Mark Duplass and Sterling K. Brown. What an unusual film this is. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Is this and a remake of the Paulie Shaw movie from the 90s? Oh, which no, I That was Biodome. Biodome with our own Kylie Minogue was in it, wasn't she? That is correct. And Stephen Baldwin. I mean, I agree with his politics, but his movies are shit. Um, and <laughs> Theatre Camp is the other one that I'm watching. Uh, which I uh, well, I won't go on too gushingly about it till I get to the review, but I'm going to go gushingly about it. So what are you reviewing this week? Oh, look, what am I not reviewing? I mean, it's just um, exciting title. Most of the new television title. you're not reviewing. <laughs> That'll be most of the new television I'm not reviewing. No, no, true. You've stumbled across some new ones here. So let's have a look. What are you reviewing? Well, th this is what I do. I find things that need to be talked about. Um, I talk about the new BBC, well, it's not a new BBC show. It's been around for a couple of months, but it's debuting in Australia this week. It's called Black Ops. So I'm going to talk about that. You can find that streaming okay. on Binge. Uh, nice. Also, I'm going to talk about the third season of The Morning Show. Apple TV Plus is The Morning Show. It returns mid next week with a brand new season, brand new showrunner. Does that change the formula of the program? I mean, John Hamm's in it now. So oh, think about that's that. That's a bonus. Oh, yeah. he's, your, he's your movie husband. Uh, more than movie husband, Simon. Simon, <laughs> getting hot under the collar just thinking about Don Draper. Um, so I'm going to talk about them. I'm also going to talk about a movie which was too much movie for Simon to talk about on the podcast. It's called Shin Ultraman. And so we're going to get to that. Yeah. Uh, and you went out and saw it, did you? I did. Okay. All right. I did. Fine. Went to a picture uh, house and like everything. I saw it like six months ago, so I remember when it came around and made a big deal. It's been has been around for a long time, but I am keen. To, no, I liked it. Simon, lot, so I'm keen to see what you think. Yep. Simon, it hasn't been released. It's literally this week it came out. This week it just popped down at Dendi Exclusive Cinemas. Good to know. Um, yeah. We've got also, fun intermission. Yeah. Well, what? I was going to say, as always on the show, we do an intermission. I don't understand it, but Simon's going to explain it in a couple of minutes' time. We're also going to talk about what else we've been watching. We've got this week in history. We've got a birthday quiz, folks. There's a lot to get through. Let's take care of it after the reviews. It stinks. A couple of years ago, I found myself watching just a lot of British comedies. And when I say a few years ago, probably like 10 or 15 years ago, I was watching mm. a lot of Peep Show back in the day. There was the thick of it. There was this whole renaissance of British comedy. But it kind of feels like in the last couple of years, there haven't really been that many great British comedies out. So when some pals of mine over at the streaming service binge are like, Dan, you got to check out Black Ops. It's pretty good. I thought, you know what, I'm going to give it a go, even though I'm not expecting much. And spoiler alert, it's pretty good. Here's the thing. I need two officers to infiltrate a gang dealing drugs on Bright Marshall State. I hate to break it to you, Clinton, but we ain't street. We're just doing a spot of drug dealing. Uh... Yeah, I'm gathering that. This sounds dangerous. It is. <laughs> Get us out of this mess. Start digging. So oh. Black Ops, and it's a bit of a pun, t pun title, so Black Ops, but it's about some black cops. Oh, uh, I see. Black yeah, Cops, see what they're doing Black there? Ops. That's good yeah. British comedy right there. There we go. So this is about two people, Dom and Kay. They are working in the, and I forget what they actually refer to them, but they're kind of like community ambassadors for the police. So they have sort uh, of- Liaison officers sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Like- They've got uniforms, and I presume that this is a real thing they do in the UK. I'm sure. not too sure, but they've got things that are kind of like regular police uniforms, and they just walk around, they hand out information flyers and talk to people about police work and that sort of thing. But they're not mm. real actual cops. And so that's kind of the sort of humorous conceit. And also the two of them are fairly sort of inept people who just couldn't really do that anyway. <laughs> Sounds least, familiar. At least that's the way they're sort of framed at the beginning. So anyway, um, they're there as the couple of black people sort of working in the local um, police unit. Uh, and so they're constantly being sort of uh, not really recognized by the other police that are working out of there. There's a great sequence in the first episode where they're like literally the two of them are on posters all over the building because, you know, um, diversity representation matters. 
as far as mm. marketing departments and the police are obviously concerned. Mm. Um, so they've got the posters up of them all over the place about how, you know, they're there to protect the community. Okay. Meanwhile, they're out of their uniform and they're just trying to get into like their workplace. And there's this cop stopping them from coming through. And they're like, <laughs> we're literally here on the poster and uh, not being let in. Very funny. Yeah, that sounds cool. Okay. So anyway, uh, the two of them are there and there's a cop there who is trying to run a um, drug busting ring. Oh, sorry. He's trying to bust a drug ring. Oh, good. <laughs> he keeps on being provided cops to go undercover, except the drug ring are, you know, African of descent, but the cops he keeps um, on being provided are middle-aged white people. And he can't yeah. f- like legitimately get them on the street and get them integrated into this gang. But no, then he no, comes no. across these two liaison officers and is like, you're my guys. I know you don't know what you're doing, but that's irrelevant. I'm going to get you out on the street sort of, you know, selling some drugs and get in with these guys. <laughs> the only thing is you have to go undercover. You have to pretend that you're cops who've been fired. And so we're going to get you properly fired, but don't worry. I'm going to look after you. And then when we bust the drug ring, I'll get you reinstated as actual cops. So they're like, yeah, this is an okay deal. So like they go and do some burnouts out the front in the cop car and get fired. And so they've got a believable story when the gang's asking them, hey, what's going on? And then when they look into them, they find, you know, they're telling the truth about it all. Except at the very end of the first episode, and this is a bit of a spoiler, but if you've ever watched a cop drama before where someone's being put undercover and the one person who knows that you've gone undercover is, you know, around the place, uh, at the very end of the episode, one of the guys from the drug rings like, hey, here's some shovels, dig a hole. I've got a body that you need to bury in here. Um, you know, catch an Uber. We'll see you back in the city later. And obviously, you know who's going to be in that body bag. Uh, so oh, so now, they're, now they're out on their own and they're involved in a black ops unit. Who knows what's going to happen? What hilarious shenanigans are going to take place? In the right hands, this could be very, very funny. Who do, who's the talent? Who are the, the, the two black cops? Or black uh, look, cops? good question. I don't really know either of them. And okay. I was hoping not to talk about talent because then it's going to yeah. show my struggle with trying to sort of give some names of... Uh, okay, um, that doesn't matter. That's all right. Look, I'm, I'm going to try Is to pronounce her name as uh, Gemma Sola Emikulo. Oh, and, nicely done. Uh, wow, look at you. Well, yeah, but there's a silent B. I don't know if I should be saying that B or not. That's the okay. thing. Yeah, I, I, think, I think he keep the G silent, but I'm, not the B silent, I'm not sure. And then there's also uh, Hamid uh, Amashorn. Here we go. Okay. I think that might be right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the creator of it is a guy named Joe Tucker. Well, he's a co-creator alongside Lloyd Wolf. Another easy name. Yeah. Uh, they've done shows like For the Love of God and Witless, two shows I don't know. I know Witless, don't know for the love of God. Okay. Yeah. All right, anyway, well, what I can say about the show is that both of the leads, very funny. I really like both of them. Uh, they deliver the comedy. They've got a great repartee between the two of them. Uh, mm, the script's funny. Like there's actual good proper jokes. And I'm going to put it out there. I laughed out loud. You laughed out loud. I laughed out loud. And to me- You're not the laugh out loud type. You haven't done that since Police Academy 4. <laughs> you know me so well. <laughs> yeah, no, that was definitely the last one. Yeah. Right, so anyway, I'm checking it out. BBC on the scale, and, yeah. like ultimately for this sort of thing, because it's a comedy, so like you can't really expect sort of a lot of um, weight to it. The things you need to measure it on are the following, which is: Do you like the cast? Is it people that you sure. necessarily want to keep coming back to? Is it actually funny? And mm. really, once you tick those two boxes, like that's it. You watch that comedy. This does it. And so, kudos. I've Black just Ops, seen the. I've just seen their pictures. They're quite, they're quite large individuals, aren't they? They're, there's a bit of physical comedy going on there, I guess you could say. Yeah. Simon, BBC. Big it's black fine. Cops. You, you can keep looking later, okay? And I don't think you want to say BBC in, like, that acronym. Like, already I'm distancing myself from the activities of Simon Foster here with some of the comments he's made about the cast. Oh, these African people are a bit big, aren't they? BBC, what on earth is going on here? You were joking earlier talking about the Stephen Baldwin, but really, how close to the truth is that? I'm not the one to say. I'd become an American just to vote for him. All right, I'm going to move on to my review this week. The first one is called Biosphere. Are you voting for Stephen Baldwin? What even for? Are you voting for him to be a Baldwin? Are they elected positions now? Let's play the clip. This is logical. 
We know that things happen that we cannot explain. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> we want fast, we want slow, what are we feeling? Uh, you pick. So we walk into a not-too-distant future where there is only two men, as far as this movie is concerned, left on Earth. One is Mark Duplass, who we learn very early on was the President of the United States. Too young for the part, but he's quite good as this disheveled, buffoonish kind of character who um, really doesn't strike you as being any kind of leader at all almost to the extent that he's been entirely responsible for the world um, all but obliterating itself. Um, we meet his offsider, played by Sterling K. Brown, who along the way we understand to be his right-hand man, his friend since childhood, and someone whose intelligence has not only kept uh, Duplass's presidential campaign and presidential life afloat below these many years, but he's also created... A biodome. See how we came full circle there? They're living in this biosphere while, while the rest of the world has been um, annihilated and they're keeping themselves alive and keeping themselves moving through um, this post-apocalyptic existence uh, with some fish. And you'll be pleased to know that these fish are named after the characters in a certain bar set sitcom in Boston. Um, and all the while, they're just trying to get on in their own buddy kind of way. What does happen is that when the female fish Diane dies, uh, the two one of the two male fish left starts to go through a natural process of gender uh, readjustment so that the fish can survive. They can then start having babies. What immediately becomes apparent is that the Mark Duplass character um, being one of only two men left in the world, he starts to go through some gender reassessment of his own. His testicles start to disappear up inside himself and he begins to grow breasts, to put it bluntly. You can edit that part out if you want, Dan, for sensitivity reasons. So what you find is this... <laughs> Sorry, how do I edit that out? You gave me no break. I guess we're keeping it in. We're keeping it in. Um, so what you have here is this very, very unusual film that starts off playing like a real bro comedy where they're just sort of getting along, playing video games, um, eating the, the small bits of food that they have in this biosphere environment until one of them starts to offer up the an alternative for the future of mankind by getting his period and developing his womb. Um and the film just goes along at this very unusual pace, telling this very bizarre, totally original story, all the while sort of working in gender politics and, uh, um, I guess, sort of gender expectations and social roles and all these different elements that come into play when this sort of situation this is totally fantastic, but entirely strangely believable situation starts to play out. Um, the two actors are great together. Uh, Duplass had a hand in the script with Mel Eslin, a young female director who, who um, is making her debut with this film. Um, I didn't... I, they go a bit high and mighty towards the end and I couldn't quite gather what the point of the, the final few minutes were. Um, it tries to go sort of super indie and super clever with... Um, the, the play out of how it all sort of uh, the denouement, as they say. Um, but boy, I got to say, I was hooked right from the start. I'd never seen a film like this. I laughed a lot. I shrugged my shoulders a lot. There's a few moments where I just went, oh boy, I can't believe they're doing that. Um, but you'll never see another film like Biosphere. Uh, so I'm glad it's out there in the world um, in limited release as we speak. Okay, it's not on a streaming platform anywhere. No, no, not locally. Um, it's uh, just doing the doing the rounds in the cinemas. But I like Duplass a lot. He often, I, I, he's kind of always in on the joke to me. Like his performances are, are can be a little bit smarmy or a little bit too smug, um, and he doesn't always endear himself in that way. But in this one, he's he's really really terrific and um, has to do some pretty brave things with his co-star Sterling K. Brown, who's also terrific. So they're the only two in the whole film apart from the fish. Um, they unfortunately Diane leaves us early on, as I mentioned, but there's still Sam and Woody, uh, and Woody starts to change sex, just like in the 
that final season of Cheers, which really went off the rails. So, um, yeah, check out Biosphere. It's very good. Or well, Diane should leave early because she did in Cheers. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Steeped in reality. Uh, I should point out Mark Duplass is 47 years old, uh, which is notable, as you said, that he was too young to be president and he could be president legally for 12 years at his age. Just saying. Okay, that's good to know. Should have done my yeah. research. Should have. Didn't. Simon, how if you'd done the research, you'd also know how to give me a really good segue and say, speaking of Mark Duplass, I believe he's a cast member in Apple TV Plus's The Morning Show. I'm all over this network. I need to have a say in the future of this place. What you are asking is unprecedented. I am unprecedented. You want that seat at the grown-up table, but it's not your turn, Alex. Don't forget to shut the door on your way out. What's happening? Someone's in the system. Get that music turned off! To say, Simon, that I was looking forward to season three of The Morning Show on Apple TV Plus is a understatement. This is a program that I found to be hugely frustrating, deeply annoying, just terrible, terrible TV for the first two seasons. But it is produced with so much gloss. It is a subject matter that, I mean, it's based around the production of a US TV morning program, like a, you know, mm. today style program. Uh, something I'm deeply fascinated by. It's got a really compelling cast of main leads with Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon in the leads. Good cast, yeah. Good supporting cast with people like the aforementioned uh, Mark Duplass in there uh, with Celine uh, Song, as discussed last week in the new hit indie movie that I can't think of the name of right now. Past Lives and the actress Past Lives. Sorry, Greta Lee. Uh, Celine Song was yep. the filmmaker. Sorry, yep. Greta Lee's the actress. Good supporting cast, good primary cast, uh, strong concept behind it. Uh, the problem is that the writing has just never really quite lived up to the potential of it. Lots of people mm. are willing to give it a pass, and I've never understood that because the show is awful. I've watched every episode. <laughs> wow. Cuts to season three. Apple TV made the wise decision to jettison the former showrunner. And so I'm thinking if the person writing the scripts has changed, which was the big problem with the program, it's got possibly like a really good way to invest some time. And then I started hearing look. John sure. Hamm has joined the show. Um, Juliana Margulies is in there in a much bigger supporting role than in oh, a second season of the program. Margulies. Love yeah. Margulies. She was there for me in ER. She was there for me as a good wife. Like, yes. you know, I mean, that's 20 plus years worth of television greatness there. Margulies mania. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, nobody's a bigger fan of Canterbury's law than I. So look, sat down, ready to watch here, the season three of the morning show, and I'm happy to report that it is 5% better than it used to be. That's good. But I'm the problem was it was 170% fucking terrible. <laughs> and so we're now here in a bit of a dilemma, Simon. So what is the deal here? Why, if, why would get rid of the old showrunner and just bring in a new runner who doesn't seem to know how to spice things up or make things any better? Who is the new showrunner? What's his or her pedigree? Um, and how is this just a format that doesn't lend itself? Well, I guess after three seasons, it must be doing something, right? People must be watching, but it doesn't necessarily make it good. The problem, okay, so there's a couple of problems with the show. First of all, and it's really apparent under the new regime of the program, but it's sort of, mm. it's a lot more soapy than it used to be. So mm. that's a problem. Like it just kind of feels like a high-end glossy soap in terms of some of the relationship driver. So you've got it's that as a concern. not a bad concern. thing in itself, though. <laughs> not a bad thing in itself, but like when it's, uh, there's good ways to do it in bad ways. And this just sure. doesn't really justify it. Like it's not really engaging soap. It's just kind of going through the motions a bit. So you've okay. got that. But the biggest problem with it is, is that the, the very foundation of the program was based on the idea that on this morning TV program, uh, which is called The Morning Show. On this program, you've got a toxic TV host played by Steve Carell, who's apparently been involved with some behind-the-scenes touchy-touchiness. And no, so no. he's been ostracized. was at the height of Me Too, and so the character's gone. Okay, so you've got that. But by doing that, and then also there was a couple of episodes in that first season which were set around some Los Angeles wildfires that really happened in real life, they decided yep. to root the show heavily in real-world events and sort of give their depiction of it. 
not right. entirely dissimilar to Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom, but with less sort of a journalistic um, intense behind it. So you've got that as an issue, but by sticking to like these constant real world events and trying to root itself in the zeitgeistiness of it all, it doesn't really feel like the show is able to take any sort of bold chances. And when there is an episode in this season, which I can't give away because there's an embargo on that episode. Uh, I will say at one point, Reese Witherspoon finds herself in a very real world situation. And by placing her there, it is thoroughly ridiculous. And what happens during that situation is comically just terrible. It just makes the show just unwatchable. Like, I, it, it's hard to say what this is okay, I'm gonna without spoil giving it. away the thing. I'm, I'm not going to spoil it. I'll tell you afterwards. I'm going to spoil it. She was in the, she was carrying one of the um, uh, gas lamps in the Charlottesville March, from what I understand. That was her role that was, um, they think they can make comedy out of all of this. No, that is, that is not what it is. But also, oh, not? you're not tremendously far off. Oh, really? Because <laughs> I was just making a gag. I was just gagging. Yeah, no, that, that is not the case. But you're also like, you're in a ballpark. I'll, I'll put it that far. Yeah. But anyway, it's ridiculous. It's silly, silly TV. And it's just such a shame to see some really great actors roped into what's going on here. It's a great payday. I can say well, that much. And they are them, some great actors. I mean, did you, you said Carell turns up again? Well, he was there on the first season. Uh, obviously, right, you don't okay. watch the program because no, he did go careening off a cliff in the second season. So you're probably oh, not going to get him back in the third. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, I haven't watched it. And I know it's been a hit for the, the streamer. And um, there's a lot of quality people in there. But if yeah, you, no, if you want some quality names, here's some names for you. Billy Crudup yeah. is a regular actor on this and has been from the first season. Uh, you Big got some blue Steve... new guy from Watchmen. Yep, you got Watchmen. Jeez. Um, I'll talk about him more being Russell from Almost Famous, but that's just me. Yeah. 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 Uh, Stephen Fry makes a bit of an appearance in there. Holland mm -hmm. Taylor. Uh, there's just a Quality. whole bunch of familiar big-name faces. You know, th there's a lot going for it. The problem is, as terrible as this is, it's still pretty watchable. Yeah. I've watched every episode. I can't stop watching it. But it's not That's good. The... And if anyone, if anybody can actually tell me with great authority what's going on in the opening titles of this program, <laughs> please tell me how it relates to the show at all. Because it honestly looks to me like they just went to a stock video site and found a file which was premium TV opening title credits and purchased it for twenty nine ninety five using um, Ooh, that's uh, a good price for opening Tim Apple, Using Tim Apple's credit card, um, <laughs> charge it to the company, okay, and then just slapped it on the front of the theme because there is nothing about those opening titles that explicitly speak to the morning show. Or as it's called mm. here in Australia, Morning Wars. Morning Wars. Um, we've had a, It's been quite the year for terrible tele, television that is eminently watchable. This house became quite... Um, you know, we set our calendars by every weekly episode of And Just Like That, the Sex and the City sequel. It's excruciatingly bad television. It's car crash TV in every regard. But I did not look away. I watched it in, and, and tut tutted at how awful it was and how far from the original Sex and the City um, it, it had fallen. And yet, compelling TV. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, are we done with morning war shows, show wars? The shows, I mean, the morning wars? done with it as far well, the morning show. As far mm. as this conversation's done, yeah, I'm done with it, but I'm back for season four. I'll be back there for season five. I fucking hate it. I think it's terrible, but I'm how there for it. How many hours of your life have you wasted on this show? Oh, well, as many episodes there have been now. So, um, I mean, I've seen all of season three, which debuts next week on Apple TV Plus. So, I guess okay. about 30 episodes or about 55 minutes each. Well, I totally enriched my life with oh, sorry, a Simon. 90 Sorry, Simon. I, I, I don't think I'm under embargo for this, so I'm just going to share it. Yeah, when you're it. watching the season return, I think it comes back with a couple of episodes. I think I'm safe saying that. You yeah. will see a sequence with Reese Witherspoon, John Hamm, and Billy Crudup floating around in space. That's all <gasps> no I'm way. saying. They've that's all I'm saying. The Furious. Oh, that's hilarious. Anyway, sorry. That's continue, continue on with your little review. All right. <laughs> I enriched my life with uh, a quick 92-minute investment in a little film called Theatre Camp. Welcome, auditioners. 
You guys are so talented, so unbelievable. This will break you. This will fully destroy you. Congratulations on being the most talented kids at camp. Starfish, starfish, jiggle like a jackal, jiggle like a jackal. These are the things we can do with masks. These people are really weird. Now, I knew of theater camps. It's kind of like a summer camp for talented kids and they get to put on a show and they go off into the into the woods where there's cabins and they make a, a lovely story. But apparently it's a very big deal in the US, certainly on the, the East Coast, the Broadway coast, as it were, and in this new film, Theater Camp, um, which is shot in sort of a mockumentary style. Uh, we learn of this group of kids who are on board for what may be the last uh, ever summer that this traditional theatre camp is open. Uh, there's a bit of a meatballs effect going on in that just up the road from this camp, the rich kids are there and they want to take over the the uh, sweetly run, very low-key theatre camp in which we find ourselves. Um, things are conspiring against the uh, the theater camp um the traditional the woman who founded it and makes it a uh, a success the wonderful joan rubinsky played by amy sedaris very briefly is um she has a <laughs> she goes into a coma and we learn at the start of the film that in in a uh, storyboarded sequence that um one day into the filming of this documentary our uh, subject fell into a coma so we had to readjust our filming schedule um, and what you find is that her son now takes over theatre camp the sort of dudish Troy played by Jimmy Tatro and he's got to try and make it with the cool kids and get all the teachers on board to try to save the theatre camp before it goes under so it's a very sort of sweet kids put on a show type of storyline all shot in a, a mockumentary style of way there are some kind of way out there comedy moments that get a little bit spinal tappy but uh, the story itself um, and the characters that are all part of this kind of kind of remain really rooted in, in reality ben platt who has bounced back from the disaster that was dear evan hansen he plays amos klubashar who's the uh the acting coach at the school uh, molly gordon who we adore from shiver baby and a bunch of other things uh she plays rebecca diane no surname hyphenated um she does the uh the dance moves noah galvin absolutely steals this show as glenn um i'm not going to give away the ending and the role he plays in in uh, making the show a success but he is the absolute scene stealer and Ao Edabiri, who where did we last see her? She was in Spider Man. She was one of the Spider Mans, wasn't she? Dude, we talked about this last week, <laughs> and we're going to talk about this again about how yeah. the fact that you haven't watched the Bear is betraying so many the aspects bear, of this podcast. That at this was point. the other one. All right, okay. I promise I'll get on that. I know people keep talking to me about the the Bear, and people I respect too. So, um, and you. So I should get on it. So Ayo Edaberry in this one, and she's very funny as sort of a ring-in who just wants to get the job and um, tarts up her resume just to get the job as the teacher and doesn't know anything about acting. It's very funny. Um, and I must admit, I laughed and I cried at the end show when they put on. Unlike you, I have a soul and a heart, and I love a good musical, and this one com this one plays completely into that love of live theatre and live, and live musicals. So... Um, get along to this, uh, do yourself a favour, as they say, uh, you'll love the singing and the dancing and all the kids are involved, are just wonderful. So it's called Theatre Camp, probably zipping through cinemas, I don't think it's going to be around for too long, but um, it's it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, so I had Ayo Atterbury as my um, talent to look at. Um, person on my list last week. Oh, as we last week's intermission. Oh, yeah. of course you did. <clears throat> so yeah, I was talking She's about her in that. Cute. She's the breakout mm -hmm. of the bear, but yes. in season two of the bear, there is a recurring character who is incredibly prominent throughout the second season, plays a pivotal mm -hmm. role, who is played by Molly Gordon. Okay, oh. so the, the character in the bear is, uh, I think her name's Claire. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that's right. Uh, she's the, you know, uh, former uh, potential sort of um, love interest that becomes the proper love interest as the second season of the show carries on. 
Uh, mm. Simon, you've got to watch The Bear. Like, really. I'm going to watch The Bear. I would have had a lot oh, more yeah. to say about this if I'd watched The Bear. Molly Gordon directs this with Nick Lieberman. She's a talent to watch. Uh, both Nick and Molly made a short film of this a, a few years ago, and it's been expanded out into this feature. So they know the this sort of space they're in. They know what they're doing, and they know all the little quirks and funny bits of, of real-life theatre camping that uh, that they can turn into a, a, a really terrific, absolute crowd-pleaser of a movie. That's it. And the four main actors in this are also the writers on top of yep. that as well. So some yep, directed yeah. as well, but Molly Gordon, Noah Galvin, Nick Lieberman, and Ben Platt all co-wrote the film as well. Yep. Yeah. It's a small production. You can tell it's a small production. And a lot, like I say, a lot of it shot handheld, a lot of it shot like a documentary, but that does not diminish the comedy and the sweetness involved with this. It's an absolute hoot. Mm. And anyone who likes to spend their time on the internet looking into Nepo babies probably will have a field day with this production. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Let us move on to the fifth and final thing we're talking about here in the review section. We're talking about the brand new Japanese movie. It's called Shin Ultraman. My interest in this one was incredibly high. So back in, I'm going to say, the glory year of 2016, thereabouts. When you peaked. Oh, I mean, I peaked about three years before then, but I was just holding on to glory at that point. Uh, this guy named uh, Hideki Anno had directed a movie called Shin Godzilla. Now, he was best known for Neon, in Neon Evangelion Genesis. Is that the name of that cartoon? Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yep. Other way yeah. around. Yeah. Yeah, that's about right. But anyway, he decided he was going to go off and do some live action feature filmmaking and made this film called Shin Godzilla. My understanding, without speaking Japanese, is that Shin is a word which kind of translates to one or the first thereabouts mm -hmm. it kind of plays that way and so shin godzilla and i didn't realize this when i sat my bottom down as the cinema was the origin story of godzilla being told on a big sure. screen uh so it was kind of a retelling of godzilla's first efforts to get onto the mainland and tokyo and you know cause some havoc in the way that he does and we know what happened there if you watch that film and i've seen it a couple of times i was really quite fond of it the entire movie is not so much about godzilla as much as it's about the bureaucracy of japan it's hmm. uh, supposed to be a satirical take on the way the government mishandled the uh, Fukushima um, earthquake nuclear um, incident from, uh, mm -hmm. was it 2010, thereabouts? Yeah, well. Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah, should have, should have looked into that. Okay, but it was a satirical take on that. And the film does a great job of showing how the bureaucrats get in the way of actually combating a major catastrophe as it's taking place because they've got so much process and back and forth that they go through in order to do it. So if something as ridiculous as a Godzilla monster attack takes place, then they're ill-equipped to handle it. That's what that film's about. It's hilarious because it's about bureaucracy. It's kind of shot a little bit like a Wes Anderson movie and that is lots of static shots and people standing around. Cute. I had a blast. So, with that in mind, I was excited to see Shin Ultraman, okay, which is the same director who's thinking, hey, look, we've done the Godzilla. We're going to start uh, tackling other Japanese pop cultural icons. Let's do Ultraman. So, this is, it can conceivably be seen as a direct sequel to Shin Godzilla. Okay, so you can watch it right through that the lens. title. Yep. As the, well, kind of. As the film opens, uh, it's very much sort of taking the idea that after the Godzilla attack on Tokyo, there's been a number of kaiju that have cropped up, and so there is a government agency that's been set up to handle these kaiju. If you've ever watched Explain the- Explain for the audience what a kaiju is? Big monster. Okay. Yeah. And by for the audience, I mean me. But yes, big monster. Did you not see the movie Pacific Rim? I, I saw that kaiju for a few years there. Is. I oh, know. I don't think I, went you on do. the set. I stumbled onto the set of Pacific Rim when they, well, the sequel to it when they were filming down in the Shire. I was down there at a meeting. And, um, were you buying yeah, drugs? I wasn't buying drugs. No, no, no. Meeting. No. no. Um, yes, okay. <laughs> do go on. Shin Ultraman. Yeah, uh, where are we at? So, yeah, uh, if people have ever watched, like, early Ultraman or, um, oh, gosh, sorry, I don't know Ultraman that well. I can talk about my relationship yeah. with Ultraman, which is a bit unique shortly. Um, Keep it clean. Yeah, Keep it's it clean light. enough. I was, I was a young child. 
Oh. See, I don't know much about Ultraman. I went into this. I saw this movie, and I got a little bit confused and a little bit bored, but there were some big moments in it that were very spectacular, which I appreciated. But I didn't enjoy this anywhere near as much as Godzilla, Shin Godzilla. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is kind of the thing. So Ultraman has been a frequent uh, cultural character through um, Japanese uh, television history. Like, there have been mm. plenty of... Uh, Ultraman shows. In fact, every couple of years they tend to um, revamp it. I'm trying to find the name of the thing. So there is a TV show that I've Everyone actually seen a fair bit of. While you're podcasting. I well, I'm trying to find the name of it. I just can't work it out. <laughs> but anyway, there's a thing. I want to call it like Ultra Force 7, but that's not quite right. Okay, but there's a TV show that this seems to, from my limited understanding of Ultraman, so, you know, I take that with a grain of salt. But it seems to be that this show is taking a lot of inspiration from this one show. Ultra okay. 7, I think is the name. Um, and it was about a group of government agents who one of their team members is um, partnered with Ultraman. So when Ultraman lands on Earth, he ends up um, spiritually linking with a human on the planet so he can understand about humanity, which is what we find in this movie. It's very much about that. And it's about a team member nice. from this government you know, group going out. In the same way that Shin Godzilla is about government bureaucracy getting in the way of that, it seems like this film and... I'm not Japanese, as you may be aware, so I may have missed out on some of the cultural um, subtleties at play here. But it sort of mm. seems to me that the very obvious text of the movie is about how generally Japan's left to sort of fend for itself, except for when there's something that the rest of the world wants from it. So in this uh. instance, uh, when Japan's left to deal with kaiju, nobody really cares. But as soon as a alien in the form of Ultraman lands in Japan and wants to do stuff yes. with them, suddenly the US is offering its assistance and getting in there. So it seems to me that that's the interest of the movie. The problem is the movie doesn't really play around with that anywhere near the depth that it probably needs to. And so mm. it's given some lip service about that in the first 20 minutes. And the first 20 to 30 minutes of this film are hugely entertaining. The problem really with this are. movie is that it keeps on pivoting as to what the show is about. It's almost like there's five episodes of a TV show that they've just stitched together. Mm. And I just couldn't find any sort of consistent through line in terms of what's the narrative about? What is the thematic core as to what's going on? Why is this so ridiculous in terms of the various things that are set up? Uh, why has the second alien that lands on a planet just suddenly turned up in the government offices of the one team that are connected to Ultraman without knowing that one of their members is Ultraman? Like, I don't understand a whole bunch of the plot points that take place. And the film right. is not interested in exploring any of the actual connective tissue. It just wants to give you a whole bunch of silly activities to while your mind away with. And I was thoroughly bored for at least two thirds of this movie, Simon. Good. then. Well, then I don't feel so bad because this came with a lot of festival buzz about it. I did go after it for my festival. When I sat down and I watched it, I thought, no. I, I mean, it does have some pretty cool sort of um, men in plastic suits against the backdrop of a little city type of action that you expect in the Japanese kaiju sort of genre. Um, and that was fun to watch, but I did not get into the story of Shin Ultraman at all. So um, just hitting Dendi Cinemas, I do believe, is your, is your uh, note here. Yeah, so it's exclusive to Dendi Cinemas. And I think it's a misnomer to say the story of Shin Ultraman as it's really stories of Shin Ultraman. You make a valid point. Mm. All right, that brings to the end our review segment. I'm looking forward to this intermission. This has got a lot of fun going forward. We're going to have to speed up the second half of this showdown because I've got real media commitments to get to after this. So, But the intermission. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's intermission time. I'm very happy to speed through this intermission, Simon, because I don't understand it. What are we doing? What's so hard to understand? All right, so what I thought was I've called this intermission Talk to Me, a reference to the current horror film that's doing the rounds, but uh, colon, the dream interview. So living or dead in any language from any industry sector, if you could choose, let's say, three people in the history of cinema or television, who would be the interview subject that you'd like to sit down with and talk screen watching and just talk to movies and just interview? And the example I put here is I'd interview Martin Sheen in 1978 on the set of Apocalypse Now. Imagine what we know about that production. Imagine the sort of interview we'd get. So I've come up with three. You're rushing to come up with three. 
Um, I'll start off with my th with one my first one, and uh, we'll see what you think. So, from what we understand, the Beetlejuice set was kind of a crazy time. Baldwin didn't want to be there. Winona Ryder was having a tough time. Michael Keaton was going crazy. So I would sit down with Tim Burton and the cast of Beetlejuice to an on-send interview at Culver Studios in Culver City, California in April 1987. That's one less than a month before principal photography finished. And I would get them at the peak of both their creativity and their anxiety. And I think that would be a terrific, terrific interview. Do you see what I'm doing here? That would be a fun interview. I mean, I kind of get that now that you have explained it, but I will say that mm. in the notes that were provided to me, it was mm. less clear. I'm like, oh, talk to anyone from any sector across space time. Clear. It was very clear. But why so, yeah, well, anyway, anyway, you like, would you go back and interview the Lumiere brothers when they stick a sheet up on the wall and invent cinema? That no. would be an interesting interview. Yeah, but what we know, that would be interesting. Give me your first one. Okay, I've got two people. Okay. Okay. The very first one. I would like to speak to Rod Serling. Oh, okay. In the in the mid nineteen sixties, so probably let's say sixty five, and wow. that way I could just have a good chinwag with him about the Twilight Zone because who doesn't want to talk about the Twilight Zone? But also, he wrote the screenplay for the Planet of the Apes, and so I'd be curious to talk to him about that. That's perfect. See, you nailed it. That is a great one. That is a great example of who you'd like to talk to, knowing what you know about the Twilight Zone. Go back in time and talk to Rod Serling. That's brilliant. But you've got here in any language or industry sectors. Yeah, well, like you could still, well, that's just opening it up. You might want to go back and talk to Gerard Depardieu and I mean, warn him about It wasn't clear that we were talking about the, on airlines. It wasn't clear that we were talking about the screen industry. You just throw industry sector. Am I talking to plumbers about screen stuff? Like Oh my god. All right. My second one, John Hughes and the cast of The Breakfast Club on set interview at Maine North High School in De Plains, Iowa, May 1984. They're a few weeks away from finishing the shoot. It has been a an emotional time on set. They don't know what they're in for. The studio has been um, bickering with Hughes and it's been a tough shoot. Uh, I would like to get Hughes and his five key cast members of The Breakfast Club and sit them down and have a chat. It's not the biggest moment in cinema, but if it's my dream interview, that's what I'd like to do. Okay, so I've only got one other thing. Okay. Okay, and I can, sorry, just to clarify, I can talk to anybody. Anybody like in any time. sector... And any, and anyone from this film, just your favourite, who would you want to chat to most from the film or TV sector? I'm going to travel back to 1996. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk to Dan Barra about what he's watching on television. Beautiful. What would you say to him? What would you ask him? I would just have a bit of a chinwag about ER and homicide life in the streets and yeah. murder one. Uh, what he thinks about that current era of the X-Files. Let him down to know the show's not going to be very good in a couple of seasons' time. Uh, what's going on to Seinfeld? Don't get too excited about that final episode. You know, just yeah. general stuff that he probably needs to know. Yeah, that's important. I mean, I was going to stop doing that with the Pamela Anderson poster. That's not what they're made for. Why would I tell? Why would I tell him that? <laughs> okay, and my final one. I'd talk to the two Kevins, Kevin Costner and Kevin Reynolds. Uh, I'd have an on-set interview on the set of Waterworld. Uh, on the shores of the Waipao Valley on the Big Island in Hawaii that would be June 1994. They would both be at each other's throats, but they can't get out of this interview that they've promised me. I am travelling back in time after all. Um, so I'd talk to them about uh, what a crazy time Waterworld has been and maybe even let slip what they're in for when word starts to get out. The two Kevins. This is Bacon Erasure. <laughs> What's the second one? Bacon Erasure, yes, no, Costner and Reynolds, who were good friends and had made a lot of films together, uh, but fell out badly until the Hatfield and the McCoys came around later on. Anyway, that was intermission, which probably went about as long as it needed to. Okay, what's next? Some would say too long. Let's move on to what else have you been watching? Oh, this is a good one. You lead off with this one. Okay, so the difficulty that I have with this program is that... Sorry, one of the difficulties that I have with this program is that while Simon can go, yeah, I'm going to talk about this movie, and he mm. just kind of continues on, 
Yeah. I do TV programs, which means that these shows just keep on going. So Simon sure. will start going, why haven't you watched new things this week? What's going on? I'm like, well, I've mm -hmm. also got 35 programs I invested in because I've watched the first episodes and I'm continuing them through because that's, that's what TV watching is all about. Mm. So cut to me in this segment. I think it's important to go back and give a very quick sort of revisit on some titles that I've watched recently and mentioned on this hit podcast. Valid Minx, point, sure. Season two, episode eight of the second season drops in the next couple of hours. I haven't seen that yet, but it is the season finale. And I have to say, I really love first season Minx and second mm. season. I probably don't love quite in the same way, but I respect uh -oh. it a lot. It's gone to some very sort of complicated areas and that's probably not a great way to sort of segue into what I wanted to discuss here, which is that if you watched episode seven of it, most of it's taking place in a gay bathhouse. And I've yeah, never okay. seen that on television before, certainly in the graphic depictions that are seen throughout that episode. Anyway, it's just wow. interesting to me that it is finding some very specific um, experiences that one has in terms of discovering their sexuality and the way that that really speaks to the mission statement of the program as established through a premise about making a women's um, magazine about feminism, even though most of the pictorials in it are of naked dudes and most of the readership for that magazine are gay men. And I find this show does a really interesting job of exploring some LGBT issues through the context of what is some very sort of standard heterosexual politics of the era. Interesting. All right. What else? Uh, also, I've been uh, blitzing through Run the World. This was another half hour comedy. It's kind of like the black sex in the city, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, yep. First season, I thought was just incredible. Uh, the first season, the breakout star was an actress who... I've got in front of me, I want to say her name was Andrea Bordeaux. Uh, she had um, quite a, yeah, it was a breakout role. She hasn't done anything since. She ended up leaving the show because uh, when COVID hit, she wasn't prepared to abide by the COVID protocols. And as a result, uh, was not invited to continue on with the program. So I went from mm. a, being a group of four to a group of three. The problem was she was the only one that was really worth following from that group of four characters in the first season. And so it's definitely felt lacking in the second season. And throughout it, they do nothing to plug that hole. And it's very disappointing to see the show go the way that it has. And you have a very brief mention of the big Star Wars property at the moment, which is getting some very mixed buzz. I can't quite get a handle on what the internet thinks of this. Some are saying it's the best thing ever, others not so much. Where does Dan Barrett fit, uh, sit on the, the latest uh, episode of Ahsoka? Look, not the best thing ever. I much prefer to Andor with its more grounded yes. approach to Star, uh, Star Wars, and I just think the storytelling was just more interesting. But I'm having a great time with this. I think it's, okay. it's grand. Good to know. That is a brief mention. All right. Yes, I'm enjoying it as well. Uh, I want to mention very quickly a show that's on SBS On Demand. I've been stumbling in and out of this one. Uh, my aforementioned wife uh, loves blue lights, and I came home last night just as season uh, episode six of a seven-episode season uh, kicked off, and I settled in for one of the most tense and exciting hours on television. This is a, a British show all set in Belfast where a mixture of Irish and British cops sort of take on the local hoods, one of them played by an absolutely frightening John Lynch, who's a monster of a man. Um, it has some terrific young actors. It has some very expertly shot action sequences um, and has a, a, a selection of plots and subplots which seem both entirely believable and very much of the police procedural uh, drama template. I just didn't know anything about this. We haven't covered it on the show here, and it, I just stumbled across it, and I want to give it a plug because uh, this, this certainly the sixth episode of the seven-episode season was an absolute cracker. So it's called Blue Lights, and it's on SBS On Demand. Simon, you know how I feel about the Irish. <laughs> yes, I do. All right, this day in history. Do we have a sting for this part? I never get this far in the podcast. <laughs> Simon... This is the greatest thing that we run in the entire podcast. It's wow, a clip from the Time Tunnel. Oh, wow, that's exciting. I will listen to it now I know that. Okay, play the clip. All right, Dan Barrett, answer me these questions. In history, September 9, 2001, produced by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, which miniseries, at its time the most expensive ever made, debuts on US TV? Barely even a question that needs considering. It is, of course, Band mm. of Brothers... Well done, sir. 
September 10, of which year? There's a bit of a trick with this question. You've got to name the year. Did the 52nd Emmy Awards take place? The big winners were The West Wing, Will and Grace, James Gandolfini, and the beautiful Seal Award. So I can't say with 100% certainty, but there is like some very logical um, ruling out of the years that you can do with this one. So mm -hmm. for most of The Sopranos' run, as well as The West Wing... Uh, nominated and winning quite a number of awards uh, were two people in this very category. So Alice and Janney won a whole bunch of awards for the West Wing. And mm. then as that started losing a little bit of uh, critical favor, uh, we started seeing um, Edie Falco from The Sopranos really picking up like a whole sure. bunch of awards. And for a few years, they sort of alternated a little bit. So we can probably rule out most of you know their runs as being sort of awarded as those two. So you can rule out those years. The key one is obviously Cell Award, and that show will be that one called, I think it's Once and Again, which was running concurrently with another show on at the same time called Time and Again. So right. I always confuse the two, but I'm pretty sure this one was Once and Again, and that one ran Once for a few again. years in the late 90s with some overlap into that West Wing Sopranos era, as I recall. So I okay. would presume that it is the Emmy Awards for the first year that The Sopranos and The West Wing, which both began in 1999. Sorry, West Wing, West Wing began in 1999 in September. Sopranos began in January of 2000. Okay, so both of those seasons will be Emmy eligible. So I reckon for the first Emmy Awards after both of those debuted, which is the 2000 Emmy Awards, that's mm -hmm. the year. Well done, sir. You created a visual Venn diagram. And we appreciate that. It was September 10, 2000, the 52nd Emmy Awards took place. September 15, 2019, just recently, who began, not that recently, I guess, who becomes the oldest person to win an Emmy Award? <sighs> this one, I'm not sure. Oh. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to work out if there's some logic that sort of underpins this one or not. Well, he's a giant of television, was at the forefront for decades. Oh, wait, stop. Okay. Okay. Done it. Okay. So it's 2019. Uh, so just pre-COVID, uh, it would be Norman Lear, and he would have well won for filmed in front of a live audience where they reproduced the two sitcoms that he did, and the first year was All in the Family and The Jeffersons back-to-back. God damn it, Dan Barrett. You're a genius. You're an absolute genius. That's exactly right. He was 97 and he did win for live in front of a studio audience, all in the family, AB from ABC Network. Okay. I know we have a clip also, for the Also, he's not dead yet. No, okay. no, no like, he's still doing very and well. And he's still vibrant. Like, you hear him on interviews and he's totally with it. It's, yeah. Totally with it. Totally with it. Mm. All right. Time for the birthday quiz, my friend. No. Not happy birthday. No, not that. Please. No, not happy birthday. This one's a tough one. I don't think you're going to get this, and I think you're going to have a spit because I included Louis C.K., but let's see. September 11, 1961, Virginia Madsen was born. From Electric Dreams, our favourite movie. September 12, 1957, the beautiful Rachel Ward was born. September 12, 1977, the aforementioned Louis C.K., public masturbator, and September Sorry, 12, 1977. Hey? <laughs> eh? You said born in 77. That can't be right. No, I didn't. In 1967, I said. September 12, 1967. Oh, there was a seven there. Born. Go on. September 12, 1973, the late great Paul Walker, God rest his soul, was born. So what could Virginia Madsen, Rachel Ward, Louis C.K., and Paul Walker possibly have in common? I mean, I presume that they've all been spending time in wine country with Paul Giamatti. What? No, it's a reference to, uh, what was that movie called? Sideways with Virginia Madsen? Mm. No. No? Okay. Now, there's a bit of a clue in the visual image, which you can see on our Facebook page. I put it up there every week for the birthday quizzes. What okay, they're all black and white be? pictures, but I don't know what that would... I mean, when I, so I saw the image that you put out and I thought yep. Louis C.K. had appeared opposite, opposite um, David Lynch in an episode of Louis, or a couple of episodes. Oh, I think it was a okay. three-part No, um, not what I'm thinking but of. I, yeah, no, I'm not too sure. 
September 11, 1961, Virginia Madsen. She starred in the AIDS drama in 1985, which was shot in very evocative monochrome. September 12, 1957, Rachel Ward. She co-starred with Steve Martin in his black and white comedy, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. September 12, 1967, Louis C.K. shot his unreleased film, I Love You, Daddy, in black and white. Also, and there Paul were a number Wolf. of episodes of the show that were also in black and white. That's right, there was, yep. And September 12, 1973, Paul Walker featured in mostly black and white scenes in Pleasantville. So you were kind of on track there. They'd all starred in black and white or monochrome um, movies. I don't really know I was on track. I mentioned David Lynch. That was... You mentioned black and white. Mm. You did all right. I'm I'm cutting you some slack. You're putting in the effort this week, and we all appreciate it. Oh, sorry. I was supposed to do something now. Uh, Simon, (laughs) let's wrap this up and get out of here. Let's do that. You have been listening to the Screen Watching Podcast. Um, Thank you for enduring this far in. Clearly, Simon doesn't. Uh, Usually, I do. You can find me at the Always Be Watching newsletter. It's at alwaysbewatching.com. On the newsletter, I talk about the big stories in TV, streaming, and occasionally film, but mostly like streaming movies. You know, the sort of movies that actual people watch and not the... What did Simon even talk about this week? Who even knows? Uh, You can find that. I also do on Fridays a Always Be Streaming newsletter, which uh, just recounts the shows and movies that launch that very week on the streaming platforms. Uh, This week, you can hear me on the Radio National podcast. Uh, It's called Stop Everything. And I talk about the streaming TV industry there for like about, I don't know, we recorded for about five hours, but I think it's about oh 40 minutes of the podcast. Oh, God. Yeah, so I'll if you want to hear some wisdom. seconds into that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah, if you want to hear me talk to podcasters who actually know what they're doing behind a microphone, okay, you might want to check out that one. How do you like my how do you like my mic technique? My technique. Okay, uh, screen watching uh, at uh, screen watching podcast on Facebook over on the X. You can at screen underscore watching on YouTube. We're at screen watching. Why did we not get just one word for all the different socials? Was I in charge of that? I think I might have been. Um, and you can email us at screenwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. Don't make that face at me. Uh, send us your news, reviews, ideas for a shorter show. Um, and you can see all my writings over on screen-space.net. I've got ideas for a shorter show. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Good show this week, my friend. Okay, I think one of us will be back next week with the new format. Yeah. you got a new format, have you? Yeah, one of us will be back. Well, it'll be an hour-long show and you'll just talk non-stop for the first half hour and I'll talk non-stop for the second half hour. That didn't work. No, That's I was, solid podcasting. I was thinking about something similar, but it'll only run for 30 minutes. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for being part of this week's screen watching. We'll be back next week. <laughs>